Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Just ask you if you've ever experienced before an obstacle. Maybe you were just on a road trip and you came to a detour or a road close sign, or maybe in your career. You, kinda, you thought you'd be at a different spot and you hit a ceiling with a company or with a friendship or there's another person that's stealing all your ideas or maybe you just got fear and you're afraid to step out in the thing that God wants for you. And Have you ever had an obstacle to something you were trying to accomplish in your life? A few weeks ago, my wife ran the Boston Marathon and I thought about this. I was like, can you say your wife is a stud? Like, my wife's a beast. Oh, yeah, I'm not trying to… Yeah, you can give her a hand. She's not here, so it doesn't matter, but whatever. She'll be in the next service. But uh, she's awesome, and, and she had a bunch of injuries and things like that that came up to that. And so we went to Boston. I had never been to the city of Boston before, and I wanted to be a support to her. I want to be like a wicked support to her. And so I, uh, I asked her, I said, in this race, like, what can I do for you? And she said, pray. I'm like, of course, of course I'm going to pray. But what else? And she said, I want you to be at the finish line. There's a family area at the finish line. Just make sure you're there when I come across the finish line. It's like, all right, that's my main objective. But. I can squeeze some more things into this time frame while you're running this marathon. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and meet you at a specific spot. Now, if you've never been to Boston uh, during the marathon Monday, is what they call it, the whole city shuts down. Everything's focused on the, the course that these folks are going to be running. It's got just layers of people there for just cheering and support. And there's this one spot at Wellesley College at about the 13-mile mark. It's called Kissing Corner. All these college gals go out there and they give everybody kisses that run by. I'd stay away from that zone if I were you. But uh, just after that, just after the halfway point, I thought that'd be an encouraging spot to bump into my wife. So she leaves really early in the morning, gets on this bus, heads off to the starting line. I go down to the front desk at the hotel. I said, how can I get to this, the 14-mile mark? That's where I want to meet my wife at. And they said, why don't you hop on the train and you take the, you know, the blue to the purple to the red and they're telling me this whole thing. I'm like, oh, can you write that down? They wrote it down and then I go out and I get on the train with about, well, I don't know, a few thousand other people that had the exact same idea. So it took a little longer than I thought to get out there. But I get out there. Shannon wasn't expecting to see me. I see her. I'm cheering her on. She's doing great. About a 15-second, maybe 30-second encounter. And then I'm like, all right, now i got to get… My objective is to be at the finish line. That's what she told me to do. This was like bonus. So I go back over to the train station. I sit there. And hundreds and hundreds of other people start piling up at this train station. Then the train comes finally after waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, a little bit more waiting, it was running a little behind, and then they won't let anybody get on the train. And there's people that are arguing with like the ticket taker people, but then I saw the conductor up at the front of the train, I thought, we'll just go straight to the top. And so I walk up to the conductor, and I said, sir, I have a ticket, they sold me a ticket, and your train is here, and my ticket's to get on your train, can I get on the train? He said, you can't get on the train, sir, the train's full. And while he's saying that, five people got off the train, and I thought, problem solved. I said, sir, did you see those five people? They just got off your train. Can I get on now? He says, the train is full. I thought, I am not a math guru. I did not ask any of these people how much they weigh. I didn't ask them how wide they were. But I'm confident five is more than one. And so I said, sir, five people just got off your train. I'm just one person, in case he couldn't notice that. I'm just one, and I have a ticket. He said, they shouldn't have sold you that ticket. My train is full. What do you do at that moment? I should have told him a story problem is what I thought about later. I should have said, sir, if you have five potatoes in a bag and the bag is full, but you empty the bag, can you put one potato in the bag? Do you see what I'm… Because if anybody would get a story problem, it's a train conductor, right? Do you remember in school every confusing problem you ever had? 
If train A leaves the station, then a whole bunch of stuff, and then you're like, what happened? This guy lives in the middle of a story problem. I don't know how you become a train conductor, but I'm like, there's fun. And you know what the worst thing was? While I was talking to him, three more people got off the train, and he still wouldn't let me on. This guy was the obstacle to my objective. Now, here's the deal. Today's message is not about how you can overcome the obstacles in your life. It's not some pep talk about how obstacles are your opportunities and setbacks are your setups. It's not that. It's not that at all. Today, we're going to talk about God's objectives and how some of us are the obstacle to what God's objectives are in the, pe- in the lives of people around us. And so we want to ask ourselves this question, am I blocking, am I an obstacle to what God's trying to do in the lives of some of the people, brothers and sisters in Christ, lost people, the people that God's placed in my life, am I the obstacle? And how can we be more of a vessel for God's blessing instead of an obstacle to God's objectives? If you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you've been walking with us through this, you know that 1 Corinthians, even though it's called 1 Corinthians in the Bible, is not the first letter that was exchanged between Paul, the apostle who started this church, and this church in Corinth. In fact, they have written him a letter asking him some questions. We saw that in chapter 5 when there was the, the woman, uh, the man that was shacking up with the, the guy that his dad was married to. We don't know exactly who she was, but it was a messed up situation, incestuous thing happening in the church. The church was cool with it. And so he wrote them about that, and he, says that he refers to another letter. And what we see in the section of this, this book that we're going through now is that Paul's responding to questions they've written him as his, their mentor. Like Paul's the guy who led them to Christ, started this church, and they're writing him going, what should we do in this situation? What should we do in that situation? Last week, we were talking about, they were asking about their calling. Because I've been called into a relationship with Christ, should that change my marital status? Should that change my social status? Should that change my job status? Should that change my, my life in some way, my circumstances? And what we saw was Paul addressed their heart issue, which was contentment. And we talked about how we dwell in domain of discontentment, but found circumstances are never going to give us contentment, that contentment is found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we talked about in that message what it is to look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, which ultimately gives us an eternal perspective. And we've got to ask ourselves, what really matters in life? And then what Paul does in this next part is he's responding to their next topic, but he goes after their heart again. The topic is food or meat offered or sacrificed, depending on your translation, to false gods. The problem was that at that time, many people believed that demons were continually trying to get into us. And one of the primary ways they would do that was through meat. And the way that you made the meat clean was you sacrificed it to a false god. It cleansed the meat, it appeased the false god. And so this is a relevant question to them. Look at what they say. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read all 13 verses of this chapter. Now, concerning, and so now I'm addressing your next question. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and notice this is in quotation marks, all of us possess knowledge. So it's probably a slogan they had. This knowledge, not all knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, in light of what I just shared with you in the first three verses, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Notice that's in quotation marks too. It's probably what they were saying, their argument. And that there is no God but one. This is great theology. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom 
So father, son, it's a great passage of Scripture to, to learn some theology here. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We exist because of the Father. We exist for the Son and through the Son. However, everybody doesn't know this. Not all possess this knowledge, he says. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, even though an idol is nothing, is what he just said. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We're no better off if we do. But, and here's your command, take care. This is right of yours. Does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak? For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, I'll become a vegetarian. That's a paraphrase. He says, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So last week, if you remember, I shared with you, we're talking about contentment. I said that the first time we came in this book to a passage of Scripture where I thought this passage actually might apply to us more than it applies to the Corinthians. Well, Monday, I go into my office, and I sit down to study this passage, and can I tell you what my first thought was, really? Meat, really? Like, we're talking about meat sacrificed to idols? How in the world is that going to apply to anybody in Raleigh-Durham at this time? Because I'm going to share something with you. I've been a pastor at Southbridge for 13 years. We planted this church in 2006. I came here, moved here, my wife and I did. And people asked questions before the church even launched. All kinds of questions. What's this church going to be like? What kind of clothes do you have to wear to church? What about suicide? How about homosexuality? Tell me about this job situation. What should, how's the Lord leading in my life? All kinds of issues people ask questions about. Do you know how many times I've been asked about meat sacrificed to idols? In 13 years. Zero times. No one has ever asked me that question. And so you know what's possible to come to a passage of Scripture like this and think to yourself, this doesn't have anything to do with me. And here's what I challenge you to do. Don't get caught up in the cultural context of what's going on here because if you get the principle of what he's saying, it's universal and it applies to almost every encounter we have with every person we come into contact with, believers and non-believers. And we see that this is a universal principle because he continues it in the next chapter. I won't read you all of the first 12 verses of chapter 9, but if you look in your Bibles, if you've got your Bible open, chapter 9, you get to verse 12, he's been talking about money. Now, that applies a lot more to us than meat, doesn't it? But see, what Paul's talking about here is ministry, not meat. And so he puts it in the context of money in the next chapter, and what's happened there is that people in Corinth are mad because he's not taking a salary from the church in Corinth. Because they, they, it's like, hey, we pay, this is our teacher, he's our guy. And he's going, no, 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 because of your issue, I'm not taking any money from you. Look at what he says in verse 12. Verse 12, chapter 9 says, if, if others share in this right claim on you, do, you not, do we not even more? He said, I'm, I'm a founder. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. If you read in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, he's talking about how we're all going to face judgment in chapter 5, verse 10. And then in chapter 6 and verse 3 says this, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, and so it's more universal, not about money, not about me, just we don't put any obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. The application of what we read in those 13 verses is verse 13, when Paul said, therefore, because in light of all the stuff I just shared with you, you know some right stuff, you're not loving people, you're not denying your rights, you're demanding your rights, you won't forsake your rights for the sake of other people, but let me show you in my own life how this looks. If food makes my brother stumble, I'll stop eating all that food. I'll give it up. I don't want to be an obstacle. 
And so there's a universal principle here, and the universal principle is this. You must replace a me-first mindset with a ministry mindset. You've got to replace this me-first mindset that we naturally have, that we all have, with a ministry mindset. Not just as this, can I do this? Is this okay for me? Those are bad questions. The questions are, how does this impact other people? We want to be a vessel of God's blessing in the lives of other people, these jars of clay that we have, these fragile lives that we put on display in whatever our sphere of influence is, then how, does, how do my decisions impact the people around me? It's a ministry mindset rather than a me-first mindset. See, me-first mindset is what we all have, and so you might be the, the kindest person in our church, the, the most selfless person, you serve more than everybody else, all that kind of stuff. You're still selfish. So it's just natural of who we are. We're born with it. We have it before we ever speak a word. If you don't think that's true, volunteer for the nursery. You'll, you'll see. You know, babies are mostly cute at church. Volunteer to hang out at someone's house who's just had a baby, and at about 4 o'clock in the morning, you'll see what I mean. Because what happens is the baby's uncomfortable. Blanket's off, needs a bottle, needs to be changed, whatever it is. They don't know how to talk, but they know how to make your life miserable until their life is comfortable. That's me first mentality. I'm going to make sure that I'm taken care of, and no matter what that means to everybody else around me. And if it doesn't go away when they're babies either. It continues on when they're toddlers, and so they grow into this thing, like you just tell them no about anything, and they will flail around on the ground. They will scream and kick. It's like, no, you can't watch that cartoon. Give me your dessert. I want the fruit pop. Like, whatever it is. And you'd think you just told them they're going to, like, prisoner war camp. Okay, they're, like, plopping around. Having a th- I've looked at my kids before and thought to myself, how did you learn that? You didn't want, I didn't teach you, it must have been your mom, I didn't teach you that, you never seen me do that, like what are you doing? And you think that we grow out of that, we don't grow out of that. And you can blame it on all, I can blame it on society, we've got an entitlement society, everybody's telling all their kids you can do everything and put your mind to it and all this stuff and, and then you wonder why people get into situations and wonder why everything doesn't go their way. That's not the issue, we're just feeding it. You can go to the Bible, like just go to the Bible, all these people pursuing different things and at the heart of their problem is they don't care about anybody else. David with Bathsheba, he's going after pleasure. He didn't care about Uriah. He didn't care about that baby. He didn't care about Bathsheba. James and John, you know that story in the Gospels, they have their mom. They're not even bold enough to go themselves. They have their mom go to Jesus and say, will you ask if we can be on your right and left? And they don't care about Peter. They don't care about any of these other disciples. They're not caring about their future. They want power prestige. You go after different stuff. Pro- you want prosperity? Like that's kind of like the goal of most of our society. If you read the story of Ahab in the Old Testament, he wants a vineyard. It's not his. He pouts like a little kid, like a toddler, and he's willing to take somebody's life to get a piece of land. He doesn't care about anybody else. That's me first mentality. That's a ministry mentality. Ministry mentality, you can also call it a missional mentality, or you could just say this. It's being mature in Christ where you start to realize that the story of all of history doesn't actually revolve around you, that it actually revolves around Jesus Christ, but that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you play a significant role in the story, that you have a mission, a ministry, and he's put you into your place, your sphere of influence, whatever that is. And like we talked about last week, where he has you is where he wants you at this moment. That's your calling in this spot. And so how does he want to impact people while you're in that spot? And you start to look at all of life differently, but it's a change of mindset. And what blocks that in our own hearts? So he shows us in this passage. It's our pride. You look at, go back up to verse 1. He says, now concerning, and so we know that he's talking about this topic, food offered to idols, but it's almost like he takes a break and just lays down some general principles. 
But did you see here in verses 4 through 6, he says that their knowledge that they have, says we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. But look at the knowledge they have. It's incredible knowledge. There's one God, and it's by Him that we exist. We exist for Him, and it's through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we exist. We exist for His glory. They knew all this stuff in their minds, but this knowledge just puffed them up. And you could even underline in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, it's like this imaginary knowledge they have, but do you notice what it's contrasted with, with is love. They don't seem to be natural opposites, do they? If I say, you know, right and left and east and west and up and down, hot and cold, if I say love, you probably don't think knowledge. It's like love, hate, knowledge, ignorance. And so you've got to ask yourself the question when you look at this passage, is learning the enemy of loving? And is somehow Paul against knowledge? Because don't we all need to know some, even to grow in maturity, don't we need to know some things? This imaginary knowledge is any kind of knowledge that doesn't actually lead to loving God. It's possible to have the right facts and come to the wrong conclusions. It's possible to be right in your mind and wrong in your heart. And if you're right in your mind and wrong in your heart, you're still wrong. If you're right in your mind and wrong in your heart, you're still wrong. And any knowledge that doesn't ultimately lead to loving God is imaginary knowledge. You might have your facts right, but your conclusions are wrong because God is truth. All truth should ultimately lead us to loving Him. Their knowledge has actually puffed them up in pride. We've met people like this before. Have you ever met Christians that have like, they can quote verses from like Zephaniah. Like who's reading Zephaniah? But they're cranky crusty. Their spiritual fruit is the fruit of criticism. The fruit of the Spirit in their life looks more like raisins than grapes. Like, they're just all cranky. Like, how is that possible that you know the Bible so well and love so little? Knowledge puffs up. You can grow cold. You get into your learning and miss the loving. And so what happens? Well, you can talk about topics. Talk about topics in small group and whether it's politics or R-rated movies or if you want to talk about is the church woke enough, injustice, refugees. And you might be right about your topic, but if you're not thinking about how the things that you're saying are influencing the other people that are sitting in that circle, that's pride. You see, the problem is pride. You want to know what the problem is in our hearts? If you're an obstacle to God's objective in other people's lives around you, then your problem is pride. He says it here in verse 1. That's the language that puffs up. This knowledge, this knowledge that doesn't lead to love for God, this imaginary knowledge, verse 2, this knowledge puffs up, even if it's all accurate knowledge, verses 4 through 6. If it doesn't lead to loving God, it's pride in your life. And so the question we have to ask, just being honest with each other, is not, do I have pride in my life? The answer is yes for all of us here. It's where is it, how much of it, and what's happening with it? What do I do? Because a lot of times we have this false assumption that like, some of you maybe want to talk about pride, like you're so proud, you thought to yourself, well, if you were me, you'd be proud too. (laughs) If you were this successful, or if you were this smart, or if you're this handsome, or this pretty, or this whatever. And let me tell you a secret, nobody likes you, FYI. (laughs) But then there's other people in here that are like, oh, my problem's not pride, it's humility. I'm I'm really insecure, and that's why God doesn't use, no, that's pride too. You're thinking about yourself. See, pride is when your eyes are on yourself all the time. It's relevant in all of our lives because we're all naturally sinful 
That's why babies are the way they are. That's why toddlers are the way they are. And we learn how to manage some of that for PR reasons. But it's still happening in our heart. That means pride's still lingering there. The problem with pride is it's so dangerous and so easy to detect in the lives of others, it becomes difficult in our own lives. I'm going to read you this quote by John Stott. He says, At every stage of our Christian development, in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy. So how do we know if we struggle with pride? I read a blog this week, and they were talking about some diagnostic uh, tools that Jonathan Edwards, one of the church fathers, he had written out. And so I won't read you the whole blog, but let me just give you the list. There's seven things that he, he posted. He said, you fault-finding in other people? That's evidence of pride in your own life. He says, the spiritually proud person shows it in his finding faults in others. The humble Christian has so much to do at home, meaning in his own life, that he sees so much evil in his own heart that he's not apt to be very busy with concerning himself with other people's hearts and what's going on in their pride. Another reason, another way you can find pride is having a harsh spirit. We've been treated with such gentleness and kindness by our Father, and then when we're harsh with other people, that's evidence of pride in our lives. Superficiality, he says, and when he's talking about that, he doesn't just mean we're shallow. He's talking about being concerned with what everybody else thinks about us. Defensiveness, you see that when somebody critiques you. Uh, presumption before God, or we might call it in our day and age an entitled spirit. Like we just, we think somebody, God, other people owe us something. Desperation for attention, <laughs> that's all over the place. We invented the selfie, so we kind of got that one down. Neglecting others, and that's not so much just a meanness to others. It's the, there's certain people that I really care what they think, and the rest of the people, not so much. That's evidence of pride, because you think those people can do something for you, the ones you don't neglect. And so the neglecting the other people is you think you're better than those few people. There's evidence of those things in our, in our lives, and we all have it. But you know what? I hate it when it gets pointed out to me. In the history of our church, there's been times where I want our church to be a place of grace, and I've intentionally told you stories before of like, People that have been forgiven that most people would be like, no way, no way, not them. How could that possibly happen? And my, my hope is double. It's not only that we would realize how forgiven we are, but it's for many of us that we'd see the self-righteousness in our own hearts. And so sometimes I share those stories with you, just being honest with my motivation. I'm trying to poke you. Like, I'm trying to be like, yeah, they can, how could God do that? So that you'd have to reflect on, can God forgive me? And I love it when I, it's like I gotcha as a teacher sometimes. But when it happens to me, I get mad, just so you know. I was reading a book a couple weeks ago, and I was reading this story in this book, and I was so exposed to my own self-righteousness, and the book's about grace. The author of the book is a recovering alcoholic, and he tells this story about how he was sitting in a rehab meeting with about 25 other men, and they were in this U-shaped circle, and they put this guy named Max on the hot seat, and he described Max. He said Max was a president of his company, a very educated guy, spoke well, nicely dressed. He's sitting in the middle. And then the therapist, trained counselor, comes in, knows what he's doing, sounds pretty brash in the stuff that he, he says at the beginning, but he knows exactly what he's doing. His name's Dr. O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor walks in and says, Max, how long have you been drinking like a filthy pig? And Max doesn't think that question's a fair question. And so he starts to talk around it. And in about 20 minutes, so several pages of reading through this book, he's diving into his drinking problem, and he's telling him how much he drinks. And then at the end of it, the doctor says, you're a liar. And he's talked, about, he's talked about drinking more than he should, and he's got an addiction to drinking because you're a liar. And he's offended by it. Max starts talking about why he's not a liar. says, can we call your local tavern and ask them how much you drink? He said, sure, call them up. So he puts them on speakerphone in front of the whole group, 
calls the bartender. The bartender's uncomfortable at first. He got, I got Max here, an affidavit. We want to know how much does he drink. And he walked, started to walk through it. It was way more than what he said. See, most of us lie to ourselves about our own sin. And then when they were done with that, then one of the guys in the group, not Dr. O'Connor, said, Max, you ever get angry with your kids? And Max starts to talk about what a great relationship he has with his kids. He's got five kids, four sons and a, and a daughter. Talks about his rapport with his sons, how much he loves his daughter. He said, I didn't ask that. I said, you ever get angry? He said, all parents get angry with their kids. He said, tell me about a time when you got angry. He said, well, there's this time last Christmas when I wasn't very thoughtful to my daughter. And they said, tell us the story. We want the story. They're trying to get them to be honest. So they can't really remember. Dr. O'Connor said, can we call your wife? I said, sure. Called his wife. His wife remembered every detail. And she told a story about how Christmas Eve, the year before, Max and their young daughter, Debbie, nine years old, she wanted some shoes for Christmas. On Christmas Eve, he took her to the mall, gave her a lot of cash, more than she needed, said, buy the nicest shoes you can find. She did. She was pumped. They got out into the mall parking lot, climbed into his pickup truck. She gave him a kiss on the cheek, said, you're the best daddy in the whole world. He was glowing, beaming with pride in this moment, and decided to stop by the local bar on the way home. And it was about 12 degrees above zero at that time. And so he left the car running. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He went inside the bar, bumped into some army buddies, lost track of time. At midnight, came out to this car. Daughter was frostbitten so bad she had to go to the hospital. The car had stopped running, ran out of gas. When they got her there, they operated on her. She had to have her index finger and her thumb removed. Her ears were frostbitten. She's deaf. She'll never hear again. When I heard that story, it was just a book. But I thought, Max is unredeemable trash, and I want to punch him in the face. And then I was done with it. Until Monday night. God has a way of not letting us go on these things. Monday night I was at the elders meeting, and we were talking. One of the elders started to bring up this story, and I verbally said, no, no. He had read the same book. And he kind of brought me into it, and we told the story together, but then I had to reveal my own self-righteousness to our elders because the rest of the book goes on and starts talking about how this guy is radically transformed by the grace of God. But I was so caught up in my anger, how could you do this as a parent? Like you're supposed to be a picture of heavenly father to your kids, and you would neglect, you would do these things, and I was so angry at this dad because I think I'm a better dad. Oh, I'll willingly take God's grace in my own life, but to give it in other people's life, it shows my own self-righteousness. We read stories in the Bible, like in Luke chapter 15, I was reading this morning, the prodigal son. We love this story of this guy, he's so offensive to his father, and, and the father in the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15 is a picture of our heavenly father. And this younger son goes to his dad and says, give me my portion of the inheritance. He takes the portion of the inheritance, he wastes it on wild living, and then he realizes, I'd be better off being a servant at my dad's house. So he goes back to his father, his father runs to him, puts his arms around him, picture of our heavenly father. Welcomes him back, says, put a ring on his finger. He's not a servant here. Puts a robe on him. Let's kill the fattened calf. We're having a party. And then the older brother comes. The older brother hears this party. And the older brother's been faithful. The older brother's been serving in the house. And he's upset. And he says to his father, your son wasted all your money. And, he come, and he's killed his fattened calf for him. I've been here. I've been working for you. I've been doing this stuff for you. Do you know that the prodigal son story is actually about the older brother? Read the beginning of Luke chapter 15. He's talking to the Pharisees. Do you know what Jesus or the Father says to this, this guy? 
His older brother, he says, all my stuff is yours. You can have it anytime you want. But your brother was lost. Now he's fine. He's dead. Now he's alive. Of course, we, wouldn't you sell celebrating somebody else's life? And he's pointing out to the Pharisees, the thing that's blocking you from me is your pride. There's a little older brother in all of us. That's what Paul's pointing out in our passage today. In verse 1, when he says, knowledge puffs up. And then he goes to the passage and he says, in verse 9, he says, talks about stumbling. That's the obstacle language. In verse 9, but some through former association with idols, they eat food is really offered to an idol. You know there's no such thing as an idol. You're right. Your theology is right, verses 4 through 6. That's made up. But in their minds, they believe that when they're eating this food, they're worshiping an idol. It says, but take care. This right of yours, you're right about this. Your knowledge is true. It doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating with an idol's temple, be, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Let's get verse 9 where it says here, somehow become a stumbling block. And then Paul says in verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat. If I'm an obstacle, then I'll deny my rights for the sake of the other person. That word there for stumble, it's, a, it's used of a stick that's put in a trap. Like if you're going to put a box on a stick, try to catch an animal underneath it or try to catch a bird, it's the, it's the trigger. And then chapter 9 and verse 12, the language that's used there of the obstacle, it's a breaking up a road so your enemy cannot advance. So you're, you're, breaking, you're, you're hindering people from advancing in their faith if they're brothers and sisters in Christ because of your own arrogance. So what's the answer? What do we do about this? Remember in this passage, they don't seem to be natural contrasts. Love doesn't say hate. It says knowledge. Knowledge, the opposite is not ignorance, it's love. And you'd think here in this passage that the answer to our pride would be humility. Isn't that the natural opposite? And, you think, and the application is we should think more of others. We should put their needs above our own needs. And, but here's the problem. Oftentimes at church, we jump to the outcome without telling people how to get there. And what happens in this passage, the way this is structured is that what Paul's giving us here, and he's going to unpack in the next couple chapters, what he gives us here, here's the source. Here's the fuel. We can give you a car and hand you the keys, but if you've got an empty tank of gas, it's not going anywhere. Let's tell you what the fuel is. What's the motive for this? Here is what it is. It's love for God. Do you want to know how to deal with the pride in your own life? It's fall deeply in love with your Father. That's the fuel for actually loving other people, is that first you have to love God. And so here, it's love for God that actually deals with our pride. It's the source of our solution. If you want to take notes on this, then you can write that down. So that the source of God's solution to your pride is love for Him. It's love for Him. Look what he, he says. He said, I'd be willing to give up everything. I'd stop eating meat. I don't need to take a salary. Chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3. I'm just putting no obstacles. And so we've got to ask ourselves this question. What would it take in our lives for us to so love God that we'd be willing to give up anything and everything, even things that are rightfully ours, for the sake of the gospel, becoming more real in our own lives, impacting people within this church body, and then ultimately impacting people outside these walls. We'll talk about more next week with the gospel. What would it take for us to so fall in love with our Heavenly Father, we'd be willing to give up anything and everything? Because you think about it, we see people for the sake of love that would sacrifice a lot. Think about love stories, people that fall in love with each other and how much they'll give up to be together. King Edward VIII, if you want a historical story, abdicates the throne, gives up power, prosperity, all kinds of stuff to marry a commoner. 
because he fell in love with her. Soldiers in the army, because of love for country, will die for their country. People for a cause, even non-Christian causes, will give their lives. I don't know if you saw last week, Sunday, while we were gathered, there was a shooting at a synagogue. I saw the rabbi on the news talking about that shooting and said, oh, there was this woman, her name was Laura. I said, Laura took a bullet for all of us. She was saving his life. Someone will lay their life down for their friend, for a friend. But many of us, we won't give up our rights for God. What's that for our lives? We don't even want to give up spare time, be even available for people sometimes. So what would it take for us to so fall in love with God that we give up anything and everything for Him? Because you come in this passage and you see Paul, he goes, I don't have to eat meat anymore. I don't, I don't need money. I'll give up money. Go to chapter 6, or chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, I'll give up anything for you. And then and you look at the church. You ever read the book of Acts in the Bible? You look at the church and how the gospel was going forward. The church is meant to be an unstoppable force. This morning, if you might bump into them out in the lobby, uh, Grant and Jody Waller are here. They're our missionaries to Madagascar, along with the Bakers. And God's done amazing work through their ministry. They, they went 10 years ago to this little island off of the coast of Africa to tell people who had never heard about Jesus about Jesus and started churches, and they were battles. They had their own personal issues, own issues in the ministry, all kinds of stuff. But now they're at a place 10 years later, they're their 14th generation of churches that have been planted there. Over, yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that. We can wait. There's over 7,000 new believers there. Why isn't that happening here? Why, why wouldn't that happen in Raleigh? What's hindering? Like, the church is an unstoppable force. You see it in Acts. It's still happening today. Why not here? Are we the thing that's stopping it? Is it our pride that's hindering it? You see what this, this passage says in verse 3, I think, is the answer here. They think about what's going on here, like in Raleigh. Why is there so much phoniness in our city, in our churches? So much emptiness. So much lostness. But it says here in verse 3, if anyone loves God... He's known by God. How do you fall in love with God? I mean, I could tell you a bunch of stuff about how awesome God is. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He knows everything about you. He goes before you and behind you, and, and that He's the past, and He's the present, He's the King of Kings, He's the Lord of Lords, He's your Redeemer, He's on the cross for your sins. The only way you even know Him is because He forsook His rights. Philippians chapter 2. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross, did not consider equality with. If anybody had the right to have a me first mentality, wasn't it Jesus? I mean, Jesus walked on, literally walked on water. Not a metaphor. He walked on water. Like, if anybody could have been like, it's all about me. Look at me. He, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. It's talking about Jesus. He was before the beginning. Did you see verse 6 in this passage? We exist through Him. We exist for Him. But He gave up His rights for you. I could tell you all that stuff. You can memorize all that stuff, and that knowledge could just puff you up. Do you know how you fall in love with God? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Those are experiential words. That's not something you just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read all the flavors and I'm going to know what that tastes like. No. You have to experience what He's like in your own life. How do you do that? How do you experience God? How do you ex well, here's what you do. He speaks through His Word. His Word is living and active, we're told. We have the, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're a follower of Jesus living within you, you want to experience Him, here, just go to some passage. Go to like Romans chapter 8, incredible passage of Scripture. 
read it, and then lay your life down next to it. And encounter God through the scriptures. And know this, no matter what's going on in your life or what has happened in your life or what's happened in the past in your life, it doesn't undo the scriptures. Your circumstances don't change the scriptures. They're still true. So you read, read like, if you, you want to know about his love, read Ephesians chapter 3. And I can tell you about the height, the depth, the length, the length, the width of his love. But you get in there and you start laying your life down next to that scripture and God encounters you through the scriptures and overwhelms you with his love. That's how you fall in love with God. You have to experience him yourself. It's not just something somebody from a stage tells you about. You've got to encounter the living God. You put yourself in the pathway of the love of God by getting into the scriptures with him, learning about his love. So you look at this passage of scripture and say to yourself, do I have a me first mentality? Do I have a, a ministry mindset? And you've got to ask yourself questions like, is pride the thing that's blocking me from experiencing love myself? Maybe I don't think I need it. Maybe I think this all applies to somebody else. Am I even thinking about the people that are in my lives? Like when I come into, think about your small group, thinking about the people that you influence when you go to work, and you get in there, and you might, you might be right about what you're talking about in your rights, whether it's R-rated movies or politics or refugee issues or whatever it is. But are you thinking to yourself, how is that impacting this person? What is I don't do or I do, and you fill in the blank, whatever these things are, and now you might, because they might have a weak conscience and they might be thinking, if, if that's what they do, then maybe I should, but then what it does to them, it might be sin for them that's not sin for you. Now, we're not talking about moral issues. We're talking about things that are like, the, what the, oftentimes Christians call these gray areas, debatable, you can have conversations about them. We're not talking about whether well, you should cheat on your spouse. We're not talking about whether well, you should kill somebody. We're talking about like how to respond to hungry people in our world. We're talking about like what, con- what music you listen to, whether it's okay to drink alcohol. Like we're talking about things that there should be room for discussion in these things because the Bible doesn't clearly say, do this, don't do this. But if you take what you believe, you might be right. But are you thinking about the people around you? Maybe you're the obstacle to God's objective in their lives because of the pride in your own heart. I told you that story. Some of you, uh, certain personality types, wonder if I made it to the finish line. I'll tell you what happened. All right? I, uh, I walked about a mile back to the next train station. By the time I got back there, I missed that train. There's a reason I wasn't taking Uber. It was too expensive. And so I then pulled up. I was like, I'm not going to make it if I don't take an Uber. So I get an Uber ride, and the guy comes and picks me up. And we're going 13 miles. I get in his car. I look at his GPS. It says it's going to take us 45 minutes in a car. Like, the whole city shut down. I'm thinking, I'm not going to make it. Like, I'm not going to get to the family area. I start talking to this guy. Name's Steve. We're talking through stuff. And I realized that Steve's Jewish, and Steve's a recovering addict. He starts telling me about how he doesn't have any power over his sin. And I start to realize, oh, God, your objective might be different. My objective is to get to the finish line. Your objective might be Steve. And so I start to share with him about the love of Christ and how Jesus has transformed my life and that, that we don't have power over our sin, but Jesus does. And he gives victory over that and, and share the love of Christ with him. And, and by God's grace, he still got me to the finish line on time. For those of you who are still wondering about that, <laughs> but even if I hadn't made it, think about putting that analogy into your own life. Some of you, you've got an objective for your life, but it might be different than God's objective. But God still uses your motives to get you to the place where you are. That's why some of you are in Raleigh. 
That's why some of you are sitting in this room in this very moment, but God wanted to do something in your hearts. He might have wanted to overwhelm you with his love and his grace today. Maybe he wanted to confront you in your pride today, but here's what I know. He wants to use you. He's got a plan for you or he wouldn't have created you. And he's not done with you or you wouldn't still be breathing. And so what is it? Let's ask him.